Yes, well, it's great to be here again and a tremendous privilege to have Sir Jeremy Cook with us. Uh, uh, I'm in the north of England. Poor man, he's down south. But nevertheless, it's good to have you. And you look as though you're wearing sort of judicial colours. Is is Was that the colour you'd go to, into a courtroom wearing? Uh, yes, it would be a little bit more formal. But if, the, um, if I was sitting and doing a serious crime, then I would indeed be wearing red as a red judge. <laughs> dripping with ermine and other things as well. And I won't ask whether your hair is genuine or whether it's a wig. It looks too <laughs> neat to be here. Oh, have we got the wig? Oh, let's have a look. There you are. Can you see that? Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, well, let's find out. Let, first of all, um, I don't I don't need to call you my honour or your honour, do I? I just, Sir Jeremy will do. Yes, if you were in court, it would be... My lord or your lordship. But, oh, your um, lordship. All right. But as we have talked before, Roger, I'm quite happy for you to call me Jezza or anything you feel. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you. All right. Thank you very much. Um, just tell us a little bit about your legal work then. You, uh, you were a high court judge. What, what sort of speciality did you have? Well, I had two areas, really. My speciali specialism as a lawyer before I became a judge was in the, the commercial world. So, it was all large money cases and arguments between big companies, by and large. Uh, but as a part-time judge and then a full-time judge, I also did serious crime, which is what uh, most people would find uh, most interesting. Indeed. So rather than talk to you about big money cases and LIBOR and other things of that kind, it's probably more interesting for most to think about things that are full of human drama. Oh, well, I will ask you about those in a moment. Um, but presumably you were a barrister. Were you a QC as well? Yes. And um, um, when you're a high court judge, do they still go on circuits? Were you still traveling? Yes, yes. I, I, I've even sat in Leeds, not too far from you. <laughs> right, okay. you, know, you, you, you one goes the rounds because you do high profile cases that uh, hit the newspapers. There are quite a lot of local judges who can do serious crime but it's it's the stuff that's high profile or particularly difficult that reg judges as they're called high court judges do and certainly i know the place in leeds where the judges used to stay and it was well guarded is that where you would have stayed in a yes, yes indeed well protected oh right well i know it well i used to play tennis around the corner from there but we'll leave that for the moment um so jerry let me just ask you if i may then one or two interesting cases i don't know how much you're allowed to tell us but there must be some that you, you sometimes remember with a, a wry smile? Well, I suppose there are two. First, for uh, those who are interested in cricket, uh, the one that comes to mind, uh, which I specifically chose to do because I was running the South East Circuit at the time, was the Pakistani cricketers who were accused of spot fixing. Uh, and uh, I said, uh, if anybody's going to be paid to watch cricket as a judge, why shouldn't it be me? So, <laughs> Uh, I tried them and uh, in, in due course they were convicted. You may recall these chaps bowling no balls and so on and so forth. Uh, for my pains, I was then burnt in effigy in Karachi. So that's uh, one of my claims to fame. But I, I also got two pages in wisdom to myself for those. Oh, years. did you? And so that is that um, uh, for, for the things I said in sentencing. So that's one one case that people might be interested in. The other one is a, a, a case that's of interest to lawyers as well as to uh, the layman. It's a case that involves uh, a duel 
an old fashioned gunfight of the kind that one used to see in the Wild West. And uh, two youngsters uh, had dissed each other, as the saying goes, and arranged to meet uh, and have a duel in the car park between two blocks of flats in New Cross in London. And one of them appears at the top of the steps to this car park area, and he has a bandana across it. So he's unrecognizable, unidentifiable. Hat, bandana, gun. A real Wild West stuff. And the other lad is is down in the car park, and he's running between the cars, and they're shooting at one another. And the, the lad down in the car park, he runs across, uh, and the man at the steps, bandana man as we call him, fires at him and follows him, pans round. And there's a nurse walking past on her way home from work, on the phone to her sister in Poland, and she's caught in the crossfire and killed. And it's the bandana man who shot her. And they never can identify the bandana man. I think the police had a good idea who it was, but they could never uh, get the evidence. But they do get the lad who's in the car park, who's then accused of murder. Hmm. And the question is, can he be guilty of murder when he hasn't actually shot the person who was killed? It's the other chap who shot him. And they're very complex arguments of law. And uh, I started off thinking, as I expect most of you do, how could he possibly be guilty of murder? He didn't kill the person concerned. But uh, by by strange theories of, of law, I was able to decide as a matter of law that was the case. Uh, the matter then went to the Court of Appeal, who said Cook got it completely wrong. <laughs> but five of them said, no, no, can't possibly be right. And then it goes to the Supreme Court and they all say, I'm entirely right but for entirely different reasons. <laughs> it's wonderful. Don't we just love the law? But I'm sorry, we will come on to the resurrection of Jesus, but but there's a case I've been uh, sort of tantalising people with about the, the thumb that fell out of the sky. Please just quickly tell us that one. Uh, well, a lot of this stuff is pretty gruesome, as you can gather. I mean, some of it's very tragic, but uh, this is a pretty gruesome story of... Um, a man who was trying to uh, find his estranged wife. He brutalized her and she'd run away on a number of occasions and she was out in hiding somewhere. He was trying to get hold of her and he has her brother kidnapped. And uh, they then torture the brother with a view to trying to find out where the estranged wife is. And whether they overdo it or whether he simply doesn't talk and they kill him is unclear, but at all events, uh, he's killed by this man and, and some of his complices. And uh, I hope you've got good stomachs. He, um, They saw the body into half in the bathroom. They carry it out in uh, carpets. They take it down to the butcher's shop where oh. one of the accomplices works and inevitably chop it up into small pieces uh, before taking it to the River Thames in the dead of night and throwing the bits in. It's about two days later when there is a security guard standing outside an office block and he sees a seagull fly overhead. The seagull drops something. He wanders over and has a look and it's the thumb. 
uh, and the victim, in fact, was known to the police. So they were able to identify to whom the thumb belonged. And of course, he'd been reported as missing. And uh, the police then begin to piece the whole story together. Um, so that's what happens. And, and in due course, the uh, people involved are convicted after quite a long trial. Amazing. Be sure your sin will find you out. Um, so, Jeremy, but you're here not just because you're a high court judge, but you are a Christian. Were you brought up in a Christian home? I was. Yes, I was very fortunate in that respect. And did you feel, I don't know, brainwashed, bamboozled into Christian belief? No, I don't think I did. Um, and there comes a point, doesn't there, where you make decisions for yourself. And um, there are plenty of people who have been brought up in Christian homes who, who aren't Christians. Uh, but in my teenage years, I had to work out whether this was for real or not. Uh, and it was, I suppose, over a period of two or three years that it came home to me, well, if this is true, then that's what really matters, uh, and I've got to do something about it. Uh, and I guess there were two elements in that. The first was I became convinced that it was true. I couldn't see what else made sense of life uh, and what else made sense of the universe, what else made sense of what humanity is, and above all, what else made sense of Jesus. Uh, and having come to the conclusion it was true, the other element was seeing uh, people a little bit older than I was who were Christians, who lived it out. Uh, and the reality of Jesus in their lives was such that I realized, well, not only is it true, but it, it's the only satisfying and satisfactory way to live. It's the only thing that makes sense, gives any purpose to life. And seeing other people living it out made very good sense to me, too. Hmm. Um were your parents lawyers? My father was a solicitor, yes. He was the first in his family. He left school at 14 and uh, uh, had a fairly tough life, but um, he became a solicitor in due course, yeah. And, and so do you remember at what age stage you felt, right, the law, that's for me? <laughs> Quite late, actually. Um, I read law at university, but wasn't at all persuaded that was the right thing. It was only when I got down and did some work in the last year or so at university that I began to get interested. But actually, I spent years thinking uh, I won't stay at this for very long. I'll probably do something along the lines of the sort of thing that Roger Carswell does. <laughs> right. uh, or, or actually, I was thinking in terms of going to South America. Uh, but whenever I explored those opportunities, all the doors were closed. They said, no, huh. we don't want people like you. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I became convinced in the end, well, actually, God has put me in the place he wants me to be as a lawyer. Which university were you at? Uh, I was at Oxford. And you played for you played rugby for, for Oxford. Were you in Oxford yes. Blue? Yes. Yes, yes. And um, at what stage did you stop playing rugby? Well, I played for about um, five or six years after Oxford for Harlequins, who were nothing like as good then as they are now. Uh, we had a very bad few years, as I recall, uh, <laughs> but it was um, it was fun. Yes. Right. And and you're married. You've got children. Yes. Yes. Eight grandchildren so far. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Now, you, you said that Christianity was the only thing that made sense, made made life sense and worth living. 
but many, many thinking people would would disagree with you now. What is it about Christianity that so rings true for you? Well, I, I, the thing I always say to people is you've got to come to some explanation as to who Jesus was and what he did. You know, here's an outstanding figure of history with the highest moral and ethical teaching of anyone who's ever lived. Uh, and yet you've got this man who spends great deal of time talking about himself, talking about his death, predicting that he's going to not only die, but go through death and come out the other side. Uh, and then the claim is that he did so. And it doesn't take much to appreciate that if that's true, then it is of cosmic significance. Uh, it, it makes sense of life and death in a way that nothing else does. And uh, what I always say to people is, well, get hold of the gospel, read the records of the life of Jesus. Above all, read about his death and his resurrection and see if it makes sense. You've got eyewitness evidence recorded for you. So if you're a lawyer, look at it as if it were evidence and come to a view, weigh it up. Well, that's why I think we're so interested in exploring the evidence for the resurrection, because you are a lawyer. You're you're used to sifting through so-called evidence, what is true, what isn't true, etc. But now you talked about the death of the Lord Jesus. Um, Christians make a lot of the, the death of Christ, don't they? And um, I think if anybody else went through life talking so much about their death, death we would think there was something a little wrong with them wouldn't we what what is it about the death of jesus that is so significant well of course he explains it for us um his death is significant in a, a number of different ways uh, but in essence what he says he's doing after what is to a lawyer the epitome of a fixed trial we have here a man on any view who's innocent we have not even proper charges pressed against him. There's no proper indictment. We have perjured witnesses who can't agree with inconsistent evidence. You even have a judge who says two or three times, this man is innocent <laughs> uh, and yet convicts him mm-hmm. and has him executed. Uh, and what Jesus says is going on here is that he's actually taking on himself the consequences of all the evil in the world. Here's man trying to do away with God himself, basically, and God himself in the person of Jesus, taking responsibility for all the evil and injustice that you can think of. Here's the, let's say, the greatest crime that you can think of, the greatest injustice you can think of, the greatest evil that you can think of, doing away with the God who made the universe. And it's actually God's way of putting the world right with himself by taking responsibility himself. And and once you see it in those lights, you see just how significant it is and why, if it's true, it really does matter because it enables us to be in touch with the God who made us and to be right with him. So, all right. So, Jeremy, we can understand Jesus' death and and yes, being buried. And as you said, there are gospel writers who have who've, who've recorded this. Do you really believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead? It's a nice idea that, you know, Elvis lives. Oh, yes, the spirit of Jesus lives, this sort of thing. But that the body that died and was placed in a tomb, that body rose again three days later. You, you believe that? Yes. Uh, and indeed, of course, the uh, the friends of Jesus, they, they took some persuading. None of them thought that was going to happen. 
despite the fact he'd uh, predicted it, they really, really didn't take it on board or believe it could happen. Uh, and so they were taken by surprise. Uh, and it's their evidence, it's their eyewitness testimony, which is recorded for us, that shows how they came to believe when they met him. Met him alive, saw him alive. Not in exactly the same form of body as he had before, because here was a, a man who would eat, he would drink, he could be touched, uh, he could talk, all those things. But he could go through doors without them being open for him. He had a body, in a sense, that was more real than the physical surroundings in which he, he, he was. Uh, and so there's something very special about the raised body of Jesus, which actually gives us a clue as to what our bodies will be like after we're raised from, from death in due course. So, but, but physically was. There's no question about the physicality of Jesus uh, after the resurrection. Not just a hallucination, a ghostly figure, a spectre, uh, a spiritual emanation of some kind. There's, there's a physical physicality about it that is very clear. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, though, at the, of course, the, the, the final chapters of those books are about Jesus' death and resurrection. The, the stories of the resurrection don't quite tally, do they? Well, it depends what you mean by tally. Um, we've got eyewitnesses telling it from what they saw and perceived. So essentially, you've got uh, uh, Matthew and John who tell it from their angles. You've got Mark who most scholars think tells it from Peter's angle, who spoke to him about it. And you've got Luke, who tells us in terms that he went back to all the eyewitnesses to find out what they had to say in order to record it for posterity, or particularly for the person he was writing to. So what you get are the different angles from different witnesses, which as a lawyer, as a judge, is exactly what you'd expect. So you get a different angle, a different viewpoint as to how these things stack up. Uh, and when you look at evidence, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for a consistency in the events that people tell, but, but not word for word the same, because that would suggest to you that they'd got together and cobbled up something. Mm. But that's not what you get. You get exactly the kind of evidence that you'd expect from those who'd been there and seen it. Now, so Jeremy, it's, 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 you know, it's a nice notion, isn't it, that he dies and rises again. And, and was it only his supporters, his friends, his sympathizers who wrote about this? Is, is there any external evidence besides Matthew, Mark, Luke and John? Oh, yes. I mean, no serious historian doubts that Jesus died. Uh, mm -hmm. We have that recorded for us by uh, Roman historians, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, uh, Jewish historian Josephus, people who are opposed or hostile to Christianity, that here are historians who recognize in terms that Jesus died. Uh, the question that really arises and the one that matters uh, is whether or not he rose from the dead. Uh, and that's where one has to look for the evidence and see, well, what are what are the possibilities? Uh, how, how do you account for the evidence as it is? And in particular, the eyewitness evidence to which I've already drawn attention. There was a man, I think, from the 16th century called Venturini, who suggested that Jesus only swooned on the cross, that he didn't actually die, but went into a state of unconsciousness that gave every appearance of him being dead. And that it was this swooned, unconscious body that was laid in the tomb. And it was this body that rose from the dead. 
Well, <laughs> it's a completely unreal explanation. I'll tell you the most obvious reason why it's 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 makes no sense at all. The, the most obvious reason is this: that at the time, at the time, even those who were opposed to Jesus and the spread of Christianity and the idea of a resurrection, they all agreed on one thing, namely that he died and had been buried and that the tomb was empty. The book that uh, David mentioned earlier was the tomb empty. The answer to that is clear. Yes, it was. And the only thing that mattered uh, was what was the explanation for that? And there were only two possible explanations put forward that made any sense to anyone who was in the know about the facts at the time. Either he'd done what he said he was going to do, or his friends had come and stolen the body, which was the story that the Jewish leaders were putting about at the time. Self-evidently, um, had the body still been there, someone would have produced it. But the idea that a Roman uh, squad of soldiers trained to execute someone had failed to do so adequately by crucifixion is just a complete nonsense. It's a, it's a non-starter from uh, any objective viewpoint. So the position you start from, as I say, is you've got an empty tomb and what explains it? Uh, you've got a dead man. Uh, and the story, as put forward by the leaders of the Jewish people, is that his disciples stole the body. Uh, and if you look at debates between Christians and Jews, even 160 years later, there's a recorded debate between uh, Justin and Trifo. And that's the Jewish line even then. The official Jewish line is the body was stolen. N nobody comes up with swoon theories or anything of that kind because it just isn't for real. People know when people are dead. Uh, anybody who's seen a dead body has a pretty good idea. It's very distinctive. And if you're a soldier and you're trained to kill people, uh, then you don't fail in, in what you're, you're doing in an execution squad. Hmm. So, so the big question is, which of the two explanations is the more likely? And uh, when I talk about this subject, I often descend into a great deal of detail uh, as to the nature of the tomb in which Jesus was put, the, the guard that was there, the standard Roman guard, which consists uh, when guarding doors or prisons, as one can tell from uh, the story of Peter in Acts, you have four, four, four groups of four men in the standard Roman unit. Four of those stand on guard awake and the other 12 sleep in a semicircle around the door of the tomb, in this case, heads pointing inwards. So anybody who's ever going to get to the tomb has got to climb over, effectively, 12 people sleeping, get past four guards who are supposedly on duty and awake, creep into this tomb, rolling back a stone that weighs about five and a half tons, up the slope, silently creep into the tomb, get to grips with a body that is covered in uh, wrappings, vestments, funeral vestments that have been put on him uh, with myrrh in such a way that the layers of the wrappings stick together and stick to the body. Take the body out of those sticky wrappings, leave them neatly in piles in the tomb, 
carry the body out stark naked past all these soldiers who on this hypothesis have to be asleep disappear into the night completely noiselessly and then start a story which they know to be completely untrue now the reality of 16 soldiers all staying asleep with disciples somehow getting into the tomb and getting away with the body it's just not for real the uh, the romans were particularly keen on uh, soldiers observing their duty if you abandoned your post or fell asleep uh, then uh, what they tended to do was to crucify you uh, upside down they didn't like that as a as an idea uh, and um they had severe methods so you didn't do that so i say one one needs to actually stop and in, in investigate this and look at the evidence say now what are what are the possibilities you don't think it i don't know it could just the the, the disciples were so sudden so shocked they expected jesus to be the one who would free them from israel their great redeemer etc somehow they hallucinated they imagined it they 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 were very genuine but um i don't know they just they just somehow saw him but it wasn't real mass hallucination yes well that's pretty hard isn't it uh, one of the things i often do when i give a talk to children on this is that i start off by taking a daffodil because i often do this at easter and i eat a daffodil <laughs> it not to be recommended i should say you, <laughs> you can eat the yellow part and it won't do you any harm at all it's pretty tasteless but don't eat the stalk <laughs> and then i say to the kids i say this if you go home and uh, you're on your own and you say to your mother the bloke up front he he, he ate a daffodil this morning and uh, mother says up oh, don't be silly you're having me on what a load of nonsense that that's not the sort of thing that happens uh, and then i say well supposing you and your sister who is generally thought to be reliable and a fairly uh, honest sort of person doesn't tell lies supposing two of you said well she might begin to think then supposing all your mates come along at the same time and say exactly the same thing or supposing 500 people all say the same thing well that's evidence evidence is simply what people say they saw and heard uh, and the evidence whether it comes from one person or from many people but of course the more people who give evidence of it the more likely it is to be right and in the passage before the one we had read to us in 1 Corinthians we have a list of the people who Paul says actually saw the risen Jesus including 500 at a time on one occasion hmm. if you look at the gospels and the uh, records in the letters you find that there're probably about 15 or so separate appearances of Jesus to groups of people none of whom started off by thinking that this could be for real they all started from a position of skepticism because just then as it is now you don't ordinarily come across people <laughs> who have died and come back to life so they started from a position of unbelief they saw it and what paul says in this letter is well you can go and talk to some of these people even now mm. so that was probably some 20 20 or so years after the event uh, when he was writing that letter something of that kind mm. but uh, he was persuaded of course because he'd met jesus himself in a rather extraordinary way 
but he's drawing attention to those who'd actually seen him in those 40 days or so after uh, the, the crucifixion. And, and really what you've said answers the question, look, maybe it was just a lie, maybe it was just made up, really the, the, draw together some of the points you've already made. And yeah, that's that's a non-starter, isn't it? Well, it is a non-starter if you, you look at these witnesses and you say, now, here's a group of people for whom truth is one of the most significant values. Jesus himself insisted on truthfulness and honesty and integrity. And Christians were renowned as people who took that seriously. Here are people who sought to follow their leader in being truthful. And so if you're looking for reliability, these are people you'd expect to tell the truth. And from a group of people who start off uh, utterly terrified that they're next on the list after Jesus' death, a group of people who are frightened, who are in fact terrified, uh, and don't believe it's going to happen, and then say, but we met him, and it's true. You've got extremely reliable evidence upon which to go. Yeah, when you say they didn't believe it was going to happen, Thomas, even after he was told by the disciples who had seen the risen Jesus, he, he still said he wouldn't believe, didn't he? Yeah, yeah well, he said, uh, I, I won't believe until I actually see for myself and touch him. And uh, Jesus says, well, you don't need that. You don't need that. You don't actually have to touch me. But if you want to, you can. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but the point he makes is that there's a good enough record here. You've got people who, who saw it, who speak of it and can give evidence. And so the New Testament is full of the apostles saying we are witnesses of these things. That's what we're doing. We're telling you about what happened. Mm. So, so Jeremy, let me just ask you this. Sorry to sound ignorant, but if I was to say, all right, so Jesus died, was buried and rose again. So what? What would you say? Well, we're back to the, the very point that I uh, was hopefully drawing to your attention earlier. Uh, a man who is capable of giving the high ethical teaching that everybody recognizes above and beyond anything that anybody else has ever, ever said. A man who says that my death is significant because this is the way in which humanity can be reconciled to God by God taking responsibility for all our evil, our, all our ignoring of God, our failure to treat God as God. Uh, then if he dies and if he comes back to life to validate what he said, then suddenly all of this takes on a huge significance. We've got Jesus vindicated, showing that what he said was going to happen would happen, that his death then can be trusted as being effective uh, as the means of forgiveness, a sacrifice for, for, for our evil and doing away with God. Uh, and all of a sudden, we're in a position where we can respond to God. Hmm. Why, why then do you, th why is it that Christianity is so bitterly opposed in so many nations of the world and even in our own country, such a an agenda that wants to just put down Christian beliefs, Christian morality. Why, why, why is it so, why does it cause so much angst? Well, I think it's because of human nature. If we're honest, we all start from the position, well, I want to run my own life. And that, of course, is is the essence of what 
theologians call sin. Instead of treating God as God and submitting to him as as God, loving him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, loving our neighbours ourselves, living in relationship to him by reference to him, we, we want to go our own way. Uh, and of course, becoming a Christian then then means giving that up. And I, I've spoken to uh, a man. He's a little bit older than I am. He's uh, mid seventies. And I was talking to him about all this. He said, "You know, I believe in the truth of it all, but I just can't commit to that after all these years." Because he recognized what the cost would be. It meant giving up his whole way of life and saying, my life now belongs to Jesus. He's my Lord. I'm going to follow him. And so I think there are two big barriers to, to people becoming Christians. One is, is that. Uh, and the second is accepting there's nothing we can do to achieve this for ourselves. We just have to accept the forgiveness that God offers in Jesus by reason of his death and resurrection. So it insults our pride. It uh, goes straight to the whole business of our autonomy and independence. Uh, and people find that difficult. I mean, you may recall Jesus told a story about a rich man uh, and the beggar at his gate. And the beggar at his gate is a God-fearing man who has a terrible life. And the rich man pays no attention to the man at his gate and uh, pays no attention to God either. And in the story, as Jesus tells it, uh, they die. And one is Abraham's best mate uh, in heaven, if you like. Uh, and uh, the, the rich man is, is suffering in torment, uh, exiled from God. And in the story, the, the, the man who's rejected God uh, talks to Abraham. And he says, Send someone back to tell my brothers so they don't make the same mistake that I will make. And uh, in the story, Abraham says, well, they've got they've got the Bible. They've got the Old Testament scriptures. They don't need anything else. Uh, and the, the rich man says, but but if someone rose from the dead and went back and told them, it would all be different. And Jesus says, I tell you, even if someone should rise from the dead, still people won't believe. And of course, we know that to be exactly the case, because that's what Jesus himself does. He rises from the dead and he knew that was going to be the case. And he knew there'd be lots of people who wouldn't accept it, whatever its truth, uh, because in the end, they don't want to. Um, I want to come on to the issue in a moment or two about life after death. But before that, from your own point of view, um, barrister, judge, etc., has it been costly for you being a Christian? I don't know. Do you are you reviled sometimes? Are you are you mocked? Are you put under pressure simply because of your Christian principles? Has it caused dilemmas for you? Well, uh, of course, as, as a judge, people are a little bit careful what they <laughs> in one respect. I, I guess I would have it easier. But of course, that's not quite true of other judges. So other judges may give you a bit of stick. Oh, and of course, newspapers give you a bit of stick. And I've certainly had a bit of stick from newspapers uh, where it's become plain in things I've said I'm a Christian. Uh, but, you know, in truth, one has it extremely easy 
compared with other parts of the world where people are put to death for being Christians and imprisoned and sent to psychiatric hospitals and so on and so forth. I mean, the truth of it is that uh, in this country, we still have an enormous freedom. Uh, and uh, for that, we ought to be extremely grateful. And, you know, I'm not saying that I've been a martyr in any sense of the word at all. No, the um, obviously, as Christians, we believe in a God who is just. And we believe in justice, but we also are quite compassionate. Has this sometimes been a dilemma in your mind when you're about to sentence somebody? Do you feel sorry for them? Uh, yes and no. It, I'm going to make a, a terrible name drop here. Um, when I was talking to the Queen. Oh, right. Okay. That's a sentence I've never used. No, <laughs> I use it just for effect, but <laughs> I've had one conversation with the Queen. But she asked me this question. She said, uh, are criminals different from other people? Huh. And I said, oh, no, no, they're not, because we're all subject to temptations of one kind or another. We all are responsible for what we do. Many criminals face temptations that you and I will never face and often from underprivileged backgrounds, which make it much tougher for them to resist uh, than those that face you or I. But we're all in the same boat here. Uh, and what we regard as very serious uh, crime, in, in God's sight, we have the same root problem. You remember Jesus says the person who's angry with someone else has the same root problem as the person who murders. The person who's covets who wants something that someone else has, has the same root problem as a person who goes and steals. If we're looking at what we're like inside, what we're really like, out of the heart, he says, comes evil thoughts uh, and murder and theft and slander and all the other things that we think of as much less serious. So we all have the, the same root problem that's got, got to be dealt with. Now, I've forgotten what your question was, Roger, so uh, uh, forgive me. Well, is this dilemma of being compassionate to the criminal, oh, yeah. but nevertheless upholding justice? Right. Do I feel sorry for them? Uh, well, the answer is yes, because uh, they make mistakes. They, they do wrong uh, in exactly the same way as I do. So there's this element of human sympathy for a wrongdoer. Uh, but my job as a judge is... Uh, to meet out justice for society, to protect society and to uh, punish the wrongdoing um, amidst other functions, which um, sentencing is meant to, to deal with, uh, deterrence and rehabilitation uh, and so on as well. Uh, but these are people, people like you and me. And uh, situations vary. And there are some situations where it's much easier to understand how people have come to take the decisions they they have uh, and done the wrong they have. I, I can think of a man who murdered his wife. Uh, and uh, it was a tragic story because she had um, she had basically given up on him uh, and left him. She behaved in the most appalling way, but left him to look after the kids. Uh, and then she turns up uh, one evening and she says, I've been to see my lawyer. Um, I've got the wrong way around. He'd been to see his lawyer because she was trying to divorce him and saying that she would get custody of the children. 
And he was very down when he came back from seeing his lawyer. And she said, your lawyer's told you. Your lawyer's told you I'm going to get the kids. That's what he said, hasn't he? Which was exactly what he'd been told. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the com- culmination of these two or three years where she'd gone out every night and gone off with other men and left him to look after the kids. And then we're going to take custody of the kids. And he lost it and he strangled her. And wrong, of course, but not something that we would have difficulty in understanding how someone could just lose it at that point. And the story gets even worse. It's a tragic story because, um, in fact, having killed her, he's then diagnosed with terminal cancer and he dies in prison within about six months of, of the sentence, leaving these two boys and this is the ramifications of evil, the consequences of wrongdoing. Mm. And our wrongdoing leads to other people's wrongdoing and no man's an island. And, I know. you know, we, we have to try and deal with that. And we have to try and do justice in what is a very mixed up world. Mm. And the great thing, Roger, is from my perspective, that we've got a God who ultimately is going to do justice and is going to get it 100 percent right. And uh, that's a great comfort to me. Because I know I'm not always going to get it 100% right. What do you do? You sometimes look back and think, do you know I was wrong on that case? Or is it, am I not allowed to ask that? You are allowed to ask it. Um, I think I've been overturned three times in the Court of Appeal in 15 years, hmm. and I think the Court of Appeal was only right on one of those occasions. Oh, really? <laughs> You've got to write your autobiography. This sounds fascinating. Um, do you go over the cases? Do you, you know, do you look back and remember them now? Well, only when something triggers All right. reflection, when I'm asked, really. Um, I think it may sound very um, cold and dispassionate, but I think as a uh, as a lawyer and then as a judge, you're trained to do the job you do, mm. trained to make decisions uh, and you make them in good conscience. Uh, and obviously you do what you think's right at the time. Mm. And there is the Court of Appeal to put you right when you have got it wrong. Mm. So you have to try and take a mature approach to that, though none of us like it. None yeah. of us like to be shown up to be wrong, do we? <laughs> no, we don't. Um, time's moving on, but I do want to ask you, if I may, about life after death, because you've referred to it once or twice, and you told a story that Jesus told about the rich man and... Um, uh, the godly man at his gate, etc. You clearly believe in life after death. Yes. And if I said, what evidence do you have for that? What would you say? Well, I'd come back to the resurrection of Jesus again, because that's the ultimate, uh, uh, ultimate evidence. Uh, and of course, what he had to say about how his followers would go through death in the same way that, that he did and go to be with him in a new heaven and a new earth, as he puts it. A new age in which righteousness, uh, everything is right, everything goes the way it ought to, and evil is dealt with completely and destroyed and eliminated. And that's so you, you believe that you believe in judgment. So there is a punishment for for sin, but for those who have trusted Christ, the punishment has been paid by Christ. Yes. Well, my favourite story of Jesus is um, the story that he told of a bad judge. You remember the story? <laughs> you can understand why it would appeal. Yes. But, but uh, you remember the story is of a, a very world-weary, cynical, hard-bitten judge. Mm. 
Are, are there such people? Oh, yes. All right, okay. Most people start from the become a judge because they're interested in justice. You'd mm. be hard-pressed, I think, to take on the job unless you thought that's what it was about. Uh, but you can become cynical about it all. And, and in, this, in the story, uh, there's a widow who's been cheated. She doesn't have any lawyers, so she has to come to him personally, the judge, and ask for him to do justice. And in the story, Jesus says, the, the judge says to himself, I don't care about God. I don't care about justice. I don't care about truth. I don't care what the Lord Chancellor thinks of me. Uh, I'm just waiting to get my index linked pension uh, <laughs> at the right age. Uh, now much reduced, I might say. <laughs> but the point is that he says that this widow keeps on pestering him. She keeps on demanding that he do justice for her. And in the end, he says, though I don't care about it, truth and justice and all the rest of it, I won't get any peace unless I actually do something about what this woman has to say. Uh, and so he lists the case and he does justice. And what Jesus says is, if that's what a corrupt, world-weary human judge does, who has no interest in truth or justice whatsoever, the one thing you can be 100% confident is, of is that a good and just God will ultimately do justice. And he finishes with a question, he says, but when he does, when he comes again to do justice, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people who believe? Will he find those who trust him or not? But judgment is there. It's it's in parable after parable that Jesus told. The most uh, loving, meek and mild person, as, as people like to see him, he talks of justice and of judgment in endless parables, separating wheat from chaff, good fish from bad fish, good servants and bad servants, uh, bridesmaids who are ready from bridesmaids who aren't. It's full of it, division everywhere. And you can't have justice without judgment, and you can't deal with evil unless you have justice and judgment. So in the end, that's what's going to happen. And Jesus tells us what the results will be. On on the one hand, there'll be people who are welcomed into the new age with him, and there'll be those who are cast out because they've simply rejected him. Mm. It's a a severe message, but we don't do anybody any favours if we don't tell them that's how it really is. Mm. Now, I know from talking to you previously, you would say you're absolutely certain of going to be with the Lord. You're you're certain of heaven. You know you're right with God. How can you have such confidence? Well, because it doesn't depend on me. Back to this point about when you become a Christian, what you do is you simply accept God's offer of a free pardon and commit yourself to him. So it doesn't depend on me being good. If it did, I'd be in terrible shtuk. Uh, and uh, it's simply that God offers me a pardon. He says, I'll forgive you if you want to come home. And uh, I have. That's what I've done. I'd say, say to him again and again <laughs> because I need constant forgiveness but it's that initial point where you commit yourself to this when you were a teenager Mm. Uh, and you're retired now but i know you're still actively involved in the law in various areas but but what motivates you what gets you up in the morning i find it harder to get up in the morning as i get older (laughs) it's harder and harder isn't it but uh yeah i'm still driven by the idea of, of justice i i 
I sit as a judge, in fact, in, in Singapore and in Dubai, uh, in, in international commercial courts. And I sit as what amounts to a private judge in what's called international arbitration, where I'm deciding cases. Uh, so I'm actually doing pretty much what I did before in the commercial context as a judge. I'm just doing it on a different basis now. And until uh, they discover I've lost my marbles, I shall probably continue to do that. Well, I don't think you have yet. But as you look back on life, um, what big regrets do you have? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Well, I think I'd have to say that I, I've simply not served the Lord. I've not served Jesus as well as I should have done. Uh, and I need constant forgiveness for that. Mm. Uh, judges themselves have uh, particular temptations to self-importance, to judgmentalism, to pride, to intellectual pride in particular. Uh, there's a, a disease that's referred to as judgitis. <laughs> and it is what it says it is. <laughs> because people think, treat you as important. They do treat you as important in court because a lot depends on it. In the end, you begin to think you are. And you lose sight of what you really are, which is just an ordinary person like anybody else. Uh, and... Uh, the great antidotes to that are firstly having children who <laughs> soon remind <laughs> you of, of who you are, but also having a realist, realistic view of who you are in God's sight. And, uh, you know, I can think of all sorts of areas where I've, I've, I've let God down and I haven't lived the way I should. And I regret that. Uh, but the great thing is I ask, you know, God forgets it. God forgives and in, in his grace, he overlooks all that. Uh, and uh, so I'm confident that when I come to face him, um, I can effectively say, well, you know, Jesus is my mate and he stands in my place. And uh, I know you'll accept me. Not because of what I am, but because of who he is. So, Jeremy, thank you very, very much. Uh, time raced on, didn't it? But that was fascinating. Thank you. Um, and now, really, we're going to hand over to those who have been watching and listening to to um, ask questions. David will tell us exactly how. Let me just say, if anybody would like a copy of um, the New Testament with Psalms, please get in touch and just ask for one. And if you want any information as to how you could ask Jesus Christ to become your Lord and Savior, just put a little note on the website that uh, David will put up for us. We'll gladly be in touch. But again, Sir Jeremy, thank you very much. I, I you know, I, I've never really appeared before a high court judge before in this way anyway. And I hope I'm not going to in the near future. But uh, let me hand back to David and he'll explain the question time. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you very much again to Sir Jeremy. Thank you. And to Roger as well. Um, that's been a fascinating insight uh, into uh, all that you've done, all that you continue to do. I know we have got a number of questions. We'll go over to Janice in just a moment, but you can still send your questions in. If you'd like to do that, uh, just send them to that text number 07946 852071. Uh, or again, we can, you can uh, put your questions on slido.com with the code 95234. And just to say as well, if you do want to get in touch with us, um, 
you can do so. There's, a, there's an email address there, zoom at aav.org.uk or go to reallives.net. Uh, go to the website there. You'll find a contact form on there and you can get in touch uh, with us then. So please do uh, make use of that. But uh, it's over to the questions now. I think uh, there are probably questions for Jeremy, but Roger, chip in on them as well. There's some I'm sure you won't be able to answer because you're not a high court judge and you haven't got a clue. <laughs> um, but there's some that you might be able to contribute to as well. So we'll go over to Lockdown Lester and uh, to Janice and um, she can bring us the questions. Thank you, Janice. Thank you very much, uh, Roger, and thank you especially, Jeremy. Um, going back to where we started at the shootout at the OK Corral, <laughs> did you ever catch Bandana Man? And why wouldn't the other man identify him? Um, presumably he knew who he was that he was shooting out with, if he was going to go down for it. Well, um, the short answer is they didn't catch up with Bandana Man uh, for this crime, certainly. The reason why the other wouldn't identify him is because uh, this is honour amongst thieves you, uh, and in all probability that they belonged I think to different gangs probably uh, and there were gang issues that would arise if you ratted on the other lot mm. so in fact he was going to go down for attempted murder regardless if you think about it he was shooting at the other chap at the top of the um, the steps so there wasn't any real issue about that, but going down for murder of the um, of the nurse meant that he served rather longer in prison than would otherwise be the case. I mean, I have to tell you, this is this is a young man. He, I can't now remember whether he was. I think he was probably just eighteen, so he he was a youngster and part of uh, the sort of uh, um, gang outlook in 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 southeast London. Um, so yeah. Mm. Um, someone says they sat as a juror on a particularly awful rape case and was conscious of the sordid details on their mind afterwards. How did you deal with cleansing your mind after a case? Again, because one deals with it day after day, it probably has less impact uh, than it would for a person seeing it for the first time. So jurors are often significantly affected by these things, and rightly so. You know, the, we're, we're looking at tragic situations, family lives ruined, murders, rapes, whatever. Um, most of that, I think, has... Um, I won't say it's passed me by, and it would be less than human uh, if it didn't affect you, but it probably doesn't dwell on my mind in the same way as it would. Um, speaking absolutely frankly, the, the things that I find hardest to get out of my mind um, are things like serious child pornography, uh, where the judge has to look at the material in order to sentence. You know, that's one of the rules. You have to see it. And it's very hard to get that out of your mind once you've seen it. Now, the, the, the truth is that evil has this tainting effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it stays with you. Uh, and I guess as a judge, you become a little uh, hardened to that in a sense. At least you get used to it, which is probably not a good thing in some ways. But but that's the reality. Uh, but at the end of the day, again, you just pray for cleansing. I mean, that's what I, I, I would do and pray that these things would get out of your mind. You, 
not dwell on them. Uh, you know, they're those verses that tell you whatsoever is noble and true and of good report. Think about these things. So you have to focus on uh, things that are, are good and right, and in particular on Jesus himself. And, and, and what one discovers it does have that effect. You know, the more you fill your mind with the things of God, uh, the less room there is then for all these other tainting matters to have this corrupting effects that they might otherwise have. Uh, and of course, the opposite is true. We know for things like, I mean, so many forms of wrongdoing are, are addictive, particularly, in fact, pornography is a very good example, but alcohol, drugs, uh, gambling, you know, the, these things are addictive, no question about it. Thank you. Um, how did being a Christian affect your role as a judge? Can I tell you a little story? I, it'll take me a couple of minutes. About two weeks before I was appointed as a judge, uh, I was reading in my uh, daily Bible readings a passage that uh, I was never conscious of having read before, though I probably had, because if you have planned Bible readings, you sort of get through the whole Bible one way or another in a given period of time. But um, in those days, you didn't apply for it to be a judge. You were asked to be a judge by the Lord Chancellor. But two weeks beforehand, I was reading a bit in the Old Testament from two chronicles where a king uh, appoints judges and sends them out. Uh, it's uh, two chronicles, chapter 19. Um, can I just read that to you? Yes, please. please. He appointed judges and he told them, here we are, Consider carefully what you do, because you're not judging for man, but for the Lord who's with you whenever you give a verdict. Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God, there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. So judge justly, judge carefully, judge without any element of corruption or partiality. And judge in the fear of the Lord. Why? Because God is with you whenever you give a verdict. And that has both a, a, an encouraging element to it, because I need all the help I can get to get it right. And the idea that God is there to help is great. But it's also a challenge because I know God is not only there to help me. I'm also accountable to him for what I do. And I'll get judged for the way I've judged. Uh, so. I mean, that was a bit of a, like a commission statement, if you like. Mm. Two weeks later, someone rings up, the Lord Chancellor says, come and see me, do you want to be a judge? And I thought, well, there it is. There are my instructions. <laughs> mm. um, did You mentioned the media, but did other judges ever accuse you of Christian bias in any of your judgments? And did any demand a retrial because of it? Uh, no. Um, Most judges, I think, are very well aware that when anybody comes to uh, give a judgment, they come with some worldview. And whilst the majority of judges wouldn't come with a biblical worldview, they'd have some worldview or other, and they'd recognise that. Uh, and the truth of it is, of course, that most of our notions of justice are based on uh, Judeo-Christian ideals. 
which are generally recognized by humanists too. So the areas where you hit problems are where humanism and Christianity cross swords, so to speak. And most of those are in areas about um, end of life issues, beginning of life issues, uh, or, or sexual morality of one kind or another. Um, so I, I got, in, got into a bit of trouble uh, with the press over issues of that kind. Uh, but the Court of Appeal, in fact, um, and the Judicial Complaints Commission, uh, in each case, um, was fully supportive, actually. That's not to say there may not come a time when it's, it'll be different. You know, the further away our society moves from Christian values, so the harder it will be. And I think there, there is a point already where Christians are probably discriminated against in promotion in jobs because they hold Christian views and people see that as unacceptable. But that, you know, that's, that's a small price to pay. You know, Christians are by, I was going to say by nature, but they're not by nature, but because we follow Jesus, we are in a sense subversive. We live to a different kingship and a different rule than the rest of the world. And we have to accept that we belong to Jesus within a world that largely doesn't acknowledge him. Uh, and so we will have different values and the world will look askance at us. Uh, Jesus said, if that's the way they treated me, that's the way they'll treat you. Mm. Question about the resurrection. Um, you mentioned that historians acknowledge that Jesus died, but isn't it only the Bible that actually describes the resurrection of Jesus? So how can you be sure that the Bible is true? Well, I don't invite people to simply take it um, as infallible. Uh, I invite people to read it for what it purports to be, particularly the gospel records or the letters. I suggest start by treating this as the records of what people, witnesses who were there said, and see if it has the ring of truth to it. Uh, and <laughs> what I say to them is, when you read it, not only do you discover if you apply tests as to its cogency for explanations, uh, you actually find that God speaks to you through it. So there's an experiential element to this as well as a, an intellectual one. Uh, if one's looking at the records, I mean, the manuscript evidence that what we've got is actually uh, what was written by those concerned in the first place is extraordinarily good I mean, way beyond any other classical work of any kind. Um, there are books written on the subject. There's a lovely short book called Can We Trust the Gospels that I'd recommend anybody to read. Um, which deals with the essential points uh, very succinctly and very capably and points out that if you're talking about the, the Roman emperor of the time, you'll find much less historical record of him uh, than you will for Jesus and all Jesus said and did. Uh, but of course, it's right to say that the primary records are exactly there in the New Testament. But that's why I invite people to, to look at them and then decide. Uh, and when you when you come to the conclusion, as I have, that at what they depict is right and accurate and comes to the conclusion that uh, Jesus is who he says he is, uh, then you find him saying, well, actually, you can trust this book. It's an entirety. And so you then do place reliance on it even more than you did when you started out. Um, a couple of questions that are linked. Um, where is the justice in us receiving a pardon from Jesus? And how can God rightly and justly forgive my sin when it's so bad and I deserve his wrath? 
Well, this is the extraordinary goodness of God, isn't it? Uh, it's not as if God is punishing someone else for what you and I have done, because he's actually saying, I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to absorb all this evil into, into myself. Jesus is God in person, taking the blame. Uh, is that just? Well, in, in a sense, of course, you and I deserve exactly what we ought to get, which is exclusion from God. But fortunately, we're not talking simply about justice in the abstract. We're talking about a relationship. Because justice has to do not just with an abstract concept. It's to do with um, an active relationship to God. Our problem is that we try and push God out of the picture. We do push God out of the picture. For much of our lives, we, we live as if he didn't exist, even if people intellectually accept it. In practice, they live as if he didn't matter. And um, what he's saying is, well, I can cope with that. I have coped with it and I'll take responsibility for it. Uh, and you can belong to me just the same. I'll forgive you. So mercy there triumphs over justice, I suppose, is the way one would put it. If you think of justice in terms of merely an abstract idea which it isn't, because justice in the end comes down to the character of God. God himself is is the essence of justice and righteousness and grace and forgiveness and all these things that meet together in him. I don't think I can explain it any better than that. No, that's good. We're uh, almost out of time, so I'll make this one the last one. Um, is becoming a Christian just affirming or believing what you've been saying, or is it something more than that? Well, it's, it's, it's more than intellectual belief, as I, I hope I've indicated. Um, the, the, the fundamental creed of a Christian, what distinguished uh, those who became Christians from anybody else, as we see in the New Testament, is simply saying Jesus is Lord. And what that really means is not just I recognize intellectually that Jesus is God, but Jesus is my Lord. He's my boss. He's the one I serve. He's the one I follow. So when Jesus came to his disciples, he said, come after me. Follow me. Be my follower. Take up your cross. Be my disciple. Lay down your life daily. Give it to me. Give me your life. So there's an element both of intellectual persuasion. You've got, if you're going to be a Christian, to recognize the truth of it. But there's an act of the will. And the, the older man that I mentioned way back uh, on one of Roger's questions, who just wouldn't do that. He'd lived a life living for himself and said, I can't, can't find myself now to give that up. Uh, he, he was being very honest. Not many people are. Mm. But that's, that's the bottom line. Are you going to give your life to Jesus or not? Thank you very much, uh, Jeremy. I'll pass back to Dave. Thank you very much to Janice for the questions and thank you again to Sir Jeremy for uh, being with us this evening. That was really very helpful, very insightful and uh, great answers as well. And um, as Jeremy said at the end there, it's that uh, it, you know, it is a decision of the will, as it were, trusting in what Jesus has done and responding to him. And uh, as Roger said, if you'd like to know more about becoming a Christian, please do get in touch at reallives.net. It'll be there at the end. Um, you can fill in the form there and ask for a New Testament or further help on becoming a Christian. But please uh, do um, 
Uh, please do get in touch if we can be of any further help. Again, thank you to Sir Jeremy. Thank you to Roger. Thank you to Janice. Thank you for all of you for being here with us. It's been really good to have you here. Been a great evening. Come back again next week. Uh, very different again. Uh, the um, world champion and uh, uh, silver medalist, Olympic silver medalist, Debbie Flood, uh, sharing her story. We'll be interviewing her. So do come back and join us again uh, next week. Thank you very much and good night.